Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. When you dispense intravenous opioids to opioid-dependent patients or write another prescription for oral opioids to opioid-dependent patients, you ultimately are making them worse. You can't make the treatment worse than the disease, and we, we just we're doing it all the time. We've trained ourselves and our patients to think that they can take a pill and have no pain. We send inadvertently an awful lot of patients down a road that neither we nor they want to be on. When we start people who are opioid naive on opioids with the best of intentions. What we're about to discuss is mired in controversy. Pain leads to suffering. Opiate addiction leads to suffering too. We strive to avoid both in our patients. Now on the one hand, treating pain is one of the most important things we can do in emergency medicine to help our patients, and we need to be aggressive in getting our patients' pain under control in a timely, effective, and sustained, as well as safe, manner. This was the emphasis about 10 or 20 years ago after studies showed that we were poor at managing pain and our patients were suffering. Now, on the other hand, opiate dependence, addiction, abuse, or misuse, whatever you want to call it, is an enormous public health issue. Opiate misuse is currently a major problem in North America, at least partly as a reaction to the years that we were being told that we were failing at pain management. As Dr. Strayer said in his smack talk on the topic in Chicago, opiate misuse explodes in our face on nearly every shift, splattering the entire department with pain and suffering and addiction and malingering and cursing and threats and hospital security and meiosis and apnea and naloxone and cardiac arrest. Well, here are some stats that may surprise you. In the latest ED study on opioid prescribing patterns in the annals of emergency medicine, 17% of patients in the U.S. are prescribed opioids on discharge from EDs. In Ontario, about 10 people die accidentally from prescription opioids every week. Between 1990 and 2010, drug overdose deaths in the U.S. increased by almost fourfold, eclipsing the rate of death from motor vehicle collisions. Wow. This increase in drug overdose deaths was driven by an increase in prescription opioids and now kill more people than heroin and cocaine combined. Opioids are the most prescribed class of medication in the U.S. In 2010, one out of every eight deaths among persons aged 25 to 34 were opioid-related. Four out of five new heroin users report that their initial drug was a prescription opioid, and in Ontario, three times as many people died from opiate overdose than from HIV in 2011. I could go on. But what do these stats mean in real human terms? Well, there's entire towns and regions across North America that have totally become dysfunctional as a result of rampant opioid abuse. Careers, including those of doctors and nurses, have been ruined, families torn apart, and lives lost as a result of all this opiate misuse. It's not unreasonable, in my opinion, to describe what's going on in North America as the worst man-made epidemic in history. 
So how do we strike a balance between managing pain effectively and providing the seed for perpetuating a drug addiction or feeding a pre-existing drug addiction? How do we best take care of our patients who we suspect might have a drug misuse problem? Well, to help us sort through these difficult conundrums, I'm thrilled to have on the show two of the most brilliant, thoughtful, and hardworking educators in medicine that I know, Dr. David Yearlink, a toxicologist and pharmacology guru from Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Ruben Strayer, an EM doc who's practiced and lectured extensively in both Canada and the U.S., as well as being the brains behind the fantastic blog, EM Updates. Welcome, Dr. Strayer, and welcome, Dr. Yearling, to EM Cases. Thanks, Anton. It's a pleasure Thanks. to be here. You, uh, you forgot handsome. <laughs> of course. If they could see you, they'd say the same thing, I'm sure. All right, let's jump into the first case. A 38-year-old man with a history of chronic back pain was moving a couch earlier in the day and developed increased low back pain. When you assess him in the emergency department, he has no red flags for a spinal or vascular catastrophe. He says he ran out of Percocet three days ago. He takes Ativan to help him sleep and bupropion, trade named Zyban, for depression. You check your hospital records and you see that he's had previous visits for alcohol intoxication and was admitted once for depression with a suicide attempt. So when you hear this case... What's going through your mind with this patient? Are you, are you worried about him? Do you think he's malingering? Are you going to boot him out of your department? Are you going to prescribe him 100 Percocet? Let's pick your brains about how you'd approach this potentially challenging situation. I'm really concerned that this gentleman has an opioid misuse problem, like an existing opioid misuse problem. What I use to distinguish between folks who have opioid misuse problems and people who don't, excluding, excluding end-of-life care, is I ask myself this question, does this person use opioids every day, either in pill form or otherwise? And it sounds like this is someone who does. And once I'm convinced that the person in front of me uses opioids every day, I, I have the information that I need to know that giving that person more opioids is not going to be helpful to that person and, in fact, is just furthering their problem. So uh, I think the, the cornerstone of management of this case is to try to address this patient's symptoms, excluding dangerous causes of back pain, obviously. But once you mentioned there's no red flags, you address the patient's symptoms in a way that doesn't include opioids. All right. So Dr. Strayer, some listeners might be thinking that it's not really the ED's doc responsibility to worry about what patients do with the drugs we prescribe for them outside the ED. You know, you know, I've heard people saying things like opioid misuse might be a public health issue, but it's not really our problem in the ED. In what way is it our responsibility as emergency providers to learn about opioid misuse and practice responsible opioid prescribing? The idea that we don't have a role in uh, opioid misuse negates the role that we took, that we had in bringing about the opioid misuse problem to begin with. The vast majority of current opioid misusers started either with a prescription for pain or getting opioids from somebody who did have a prescription for pain. So unlike the uh, alcohol and tobacco problems, the opioid problem, because opioids have always only been available through a doctor's prescription, is in large part iatrogenic. If that's not convincing, the magnitude of harm 
that we see today with opioid misuse makes it uh, a true public health crisis. And public health protection is one of the key roles of an emergency physician. It's not uh, as important on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis as resuscitation and identifying dangerous conditions, but it is nonetheless a very important role. And we do all sorts of other things in the emergency department in the name of public health. This is uh, perhaps the most important public health problem of our day. Yeah, I might just sort of second to that. I mean, I think Ruben made a really important point. This problem was largely created by doctors. And, you know, we got the message in the 80s, but really in the 90s and in the mid 90s in particular, that that we should be using opioids a lot more for the treatment of chronic pain. And if we didn't do that, we were not being compassionate physicians. You know, the word opiophobia uh, has been thrown around since, I guess, the late 80s. So we swallowed that message hook, line and sinker despite the fact that there really was no evidence other than a handful of case series here and there. Uh, and as professionals who have contributed to, really helped create the problem, I think we have to own that problem and, and play a role in its uh, reparation. Part of the reason we got to where we are is that the drugs that we have for pain don't you know, excluding opioids just don't work very well for many patients. I mean, acetaminophen is not a very good analgesic for a good number of patients who take it. And non-steroidals, similarly, and they've all got their toxicities. I mean, no doc who sees patients uh, hasn't been burned by GI bleeds and AKI from from NSAIDs. So I think when when we started to hear this message, that we should be prescribing opioids more and more. We were actually quite happy to hear it. I mean, we are conditioned by nature to want to make people feel better. It's one of the most, probably the most important goal in the practice of medicine is the relief of suffering. So to hear experts tell us that we should be using opioids more and more and that we didn't have to worry about the perennial fears that we had for decades about uh, addiction. Like We took that message hook, line, and sinker. And really, when you dig into the the literature on this, the the evidence that addiction is rare is really quite weak. Uh, and when you look at the the evidence about the use of opioids in long-term patients, it's always anecdote-based. It's case series anecdote stuff. But I think when you when you dig deep into it, you see that most of the message came from the pharmaceutical industry in one way or another. It came from key opinion leaders who were paid huge sums of money to travel around the country and preach the gospel of opioids. It came from organizations, some of them patient advocacy groups, which really, when funded by drug companies, are really uh, nothing more than uh, marketing under the guise of philanthropy. But with the this sort of persistent assault, we took the message, and, and now we have a whole generation of physicians who've come to see opioids as a expected management tool. One of the more insidious ways that opioids work is that they make people feel better immediately. When you give an opioid-dependent patient two milligrams of intravenous dilaudid, you are going to take someone who looks like they're suffering and often is suffering, and you're going to make that person comfortable and happy. That's something that I want to do as a physician and that you want to do as a physician, as Dave was just alluding to. The problem 
is that at the same time that that two milligram IV push of Dilaudid is making the patient in front of you look and feel better at this moment, that same IV push of Dilaudid is furthering their addiction. It's perpetuating their hyperalgesia. It's making their problem worse. And when you dispense intravenous opioids to opioid-dependent patients or write another prescription for oral opioids to opioid-dependent patients, you ultimately are making them worse. I think it's important to appreciate that there are people who hold very different opinions from what Ruben and I have said. People who will say that opioids do have a role in chronic pain and that, um, you know, that the, the message that we were fed for, for so long is actually not necessarily incorrect. Um, I think the data are at increasingly at odds with their view, but um, I think it's important to recognize that that's what makes this epidemic so different. You know, if there was an outbreak of E. coli in Columbus, Ohio, and 13 people were, you know, dead from HUS or, or what have you. Nobody would be calling for more tainted beef to be sold. And so this epidemic is, is different in part because it starts with doctors and it starts with compassion and it starts with a prescription, but it also is perpetuated by people who I think are quite convinced that there's this epidemic of untreated pain. And that's not true. I mean, there's plenty of pain out there and pain is important, but the notion that it's an epidemic is not correct. And furthermore, the notion that opioids are the way to fix it is not only incorrect, it's really dangerous. Absolutely. You know, I think that uh, we probably all recognize that after what you guys have just said, that we can play an important role in mitigating this whole problem with opioid misuse. So I want to talk a little bit about risk stratification and how we can identify patients who might be having a problem. So, Dr. Yerling, which patients in particular are at risk for opiate misuse? And for the patient in our case, what kind of questions would you want to ask in particular to get some sense of his risk in terms of his opiate misuse? Well, uh, I think the idea that you can identify somebody who is at low risk for opioid misuse is a little bit of a dangerous one. I think it's fair to say that you can grade people in terms of their risk, but you know the opioid risk tool is probably the most widely used one out there. This was developed by Lynn Webster, and that tool a lacks face validity. It's a quick tool. You ask a bunch of questions, and it's pretty much you're done. But it lacks so face that's, validity. That's the one. That's the one that asks about family history of substance abuse, a person and sexual, history of and sex, substance and abuse, sexual uh, being sexually exactly. assaulted as a kid is is in that question. Which is, uh, as an emergency doctor, I don't feel like I have a good enough rapport with most of my patients to. Uh, dive into their sexual history when they come in for an ankle sprint. Uh, even if you did have the time and inclination and rapport with the patient to ask them the questions outlined in the opioid risk tool, the patients who that tool categorizes as low risk, you know, about 38% of them will eventually display aberrant drug behaviors down the road. So I think the point is that these drugs are inherently risky. And for many patients, they can be tremendously reinforcing and who knows why somebody who's got, you know, a seemingly low risk patient who's got, you know, none of the usual red flags. If you take a hundred people like that and you give them all a taste of opioids for three days or seven days for reasons that I think we don't fully understand, genetics, social factors, uh, you know, who knows, you will unmask a fondness for opioids in a subset of them. And even if it's only a small subset, a small proportion of a very large number 
is a very large number. And it's not hard to uh, tell a story how, how trying to stratify people into low risk can still have its downsides. I'm not, you might disagree with that. Uh, I think it's valuable to stratify patients by using what tools are available to us to predict who's more and less likely to be harmed by opioids. But we also must recognize the limitations of those tools and more importantly, recognize the harms of prescribing opioids, especially to opioid naive patients. And this, I think, is where we have the most to gain, the the most improvement to make as acute care providers is to think about a prescription to an opioid naive patient, someone who doesn't take opioids ever or very rarely, to think about that prescription as a risk, as a gamble. It's for the reasons that I alluded to earlier. I think even if you designed a patient who on paper looks like they are really, really low risk, you give enough people like that their first taste of opioids and they are going to, you're going to unmask a fondness and you are going to end up, uh, I think, sending some of them down a path that they never wanted to be on and you had no intention of ever, ever creating. Yeah. In, in terms of risk, I think it's really interesting how in emergency medicine, for most life-threatening or major morbidity problems, we accept a risk of what, like one or two percent. You know, we spend a lot of time and energy ruling out ACS, for example, and we'll send someone home if we're pretty confident that they have less than a one or two percent chance of an MI, for example. Yet, when we're prescribing opiates, most of us don't even think twice about the one or two or three or four percent of those patients that we prescribe opiates who we might be ruining their lives, you know, for the long run with the prescription of opiates that we give them. That's the message that I'm trying to emphasize is uh, when you are dealing with a patient who has acute pain to ask yourself the question, what are the real benefits of prescribing opioids in this, in this case? And what are the possible harms? And I think that when we start to look at a prescription for opioids in the same way that we view prescriptions for other drugs that we prescribe all the time, like NSAIDs or like colchicine or like antibiotics, we ask, what's the likelihood of benefit? What's the likelihood of harm? And so it should be with opioids. This patient is at high risk if you look at any of the scales. So he's got a history of alcohol abuse. He's got a psychiatric history. Uh, He's already taking benzodiazepines for sleep. So all your red flags are up. In terms of his history of chronic pain, you know, there's this theory out there that opioids can actually cause pain in the long run. Can you explain to our listeners how a patient with chronic pain using opioids can actually suffer more from their pain? I think there's a there's a phenomenon that not everyone appreciates, and in fact, some people don't even really believe in. It's called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Um, I think it's a real thing, and I see patients who I'm quite certain have it. These are people who started with you know low back pain or osteoarthritis or even fibromyalgia and got put by a you know well-intentioned physician on modest doses of opioids, and just as time progressed and as tolerance developed and as the dose went up and up. And up, which is what we were told to do for much of the 90s and 2000s. You know, this is, and you guys see this every day, people on hundreds of milligrams of morphine or equivalent. My personal record is 5,000. 
and they, they look like they've got fibromyalgia fulminans. They've got allodynia. You touch some part of their body and they, they wince in pain and they're not exaggerating. They're, they are really suffering and they are suffering on the basis of the drugs themselves. And the pathophysiology of this is not well understood. I think it has to do with the drugs metabolites and what they do to receptors that have nothing to do with uh, the mu opiate receptor. Hyperalgesia has, I think, been pretty well demonstrated experimentally, both in animal models and in patients who take opioids every day when they've been studied. We also know this from our experience with patients who take opioids every day and the way that they respond to painful stimuli that would otherwise be well tolerated. The example that I remember best when I first learned of this was starting IVs on sickle cell patients and other patients who use opioids every day and you watch them scream in pain and you can't believe how much pain they appear to be in. And at first I thought that they were just being dramatic, but now I recognize that they are feeling exquisite pain uh, because they've been so dramatically sensitized by their daily opioid use. And these are the patients who, uh, you know, for years we just figured more is better. Maybe we'd go up on the opioid doses. And I think it's exactly the wrong thing to do. Those are the people who, A, you make worse, and B, with the dose escalation and, you know, a couple of drinks at a party or a sleeping pill, they just don't wake up. Yeah, so we've got a, a lot to tackle with some of these patients. So I want to move on to harm reduction strategies and what we can actually do to help these patients in the ED. Everyone who's worked in an ED in North America knows that this is easier said than done. So, Dr. Strayer, what are some strategies you use when faced with a patient in the ED that you might suspect might be suffering from an opiate misuse problem, like the gentleman in our first case that I presented? How do you handle that situation? How do you try and use those harm reduction strategies when you're actually talking to the patient? So, I think about harm reduction around opioids as arising from three areas. The first is in opioid-naive patients and trying to keep them opioid-naive. The second has to do with reducing the number of opioid pills out there in the community, not just for the patient in front of you, but every Percocet that you put out there can be potentially abused. And we are, as has been said, awash in opioid pills as a community, which is part of the problem. What you're getting at with this patient is the third element of the opioid harm reduction triad, which is reducing harm and nudging towards recovery in patients who have manifest evidence of opioid misuse. The cornerstone, in my view, of managing patients who have demonstrated opioid misuse is to not further their addiction, not further the harm that's already been visited upon them by opioids by using more opioids, which is the easiest thing to do, no question. Now you make them happy, you can move on to the next patient. You also feel like you're on some level reducing suffering. You're making them feel better. That appeals to us, as we discussed. But we know that that's not the case in the larger sense, that you're, you're making them worse. The way that I, I manage a patient who has a significant burden of red flags or yellow flags for opioid misuse is I first make it clear to myself and then ultimately the patient that I'm not going to be using opioids to manage their symptoms. And I use a two-pronged approach where I offer opioid alternatives to manage their symptoms at the same time that I encourage patients to move towards recovery. 
Here I'd like to go over some key harm reduction techniques that you can use in your practice. First, avoid prescribing extended release long-acting preparations of opioids because they've been shown to have double the overdose potential. Second, avoid prescribing opioids to someone who's already taking sedatives, especially benzodiazepines, because that increases the risk of overdose death. Third, avoid prescribing opioids to alcoholics or patients who are regular benzo users or sedative users, especially if they have known substance abuse histories or a history of mental illness. Next, Avoid oxycodone, Percocet or Percodan, as it tends to have the effect of euphoria and therefore is more habit-forming than oral morphine. Patients get higher from it, and so they're more likely to get addicted to it. Next, if prescribing opioids, prescribe a small number of tablets to last the patient maybe two or three days because opioid dependence can develop within as little as four or five days and usually will develop within 14 days. And if you know the patient is an IV drug user, don't give them oral opioids because many of them will crush the tablets up and use them intravenously, which results in infectious and thrombotic disasters that you really don't want. And lastly, tell patients to discard unused pills immediately, especially if they have adolescents living at home with them. Because many people start their drug addiction in adolescence by experimenting with parents' opioid prescription pills. Non-medical use of opioids in Ontario are ranked as the third drugs of choice for students, and 67% are getting them from home. So tell your patients to lock their meds. Next, Dr. Strayer is going to give some tips and tricks about what to actually say to the patient in terms of setting expectations and transferring the blame. I've had great success with framing my reluctance to use opioids as coming from a conviction that they're causing harm, not trying to determine whether someone is lying to me or telling the truth or whether their pain is legitimate or nonsense, but announcing to the patient that I believe that opioids are harming that patient and that I want to help the patient. I want to make their symptoms improve. I want to make them feel better but I'm unwilling to use opioids because I feel like they're being harmed by opioids. And in my experience, when you frame your reluctance to use opioids as coming from a conviction that they are harming the patient, you can manage the patient in a way that is less confrontational and, I believe, more likely to nudge them towards recovery. Now Dr. Strayer is going to describe how he tries to shift the blame or transfer the blame away from the patient and the language that he uses to do this. So another tool that I use when I'm trying to manage patients who I'm concerned are being harmed by opioids is I try to shift the blame away from the patient. And I'll use phraseology like, you've been taking medicines that we prescribed for you for a long time, and you've been taking them as prescribed, but it turns out that even if you use these medications as prescribed by your physician, they can cause harm, they can cause dependence. And so our role now is to try to break free of that dependence. I mean, some patients won't want to hear that, right? Most patients won't want to hear that. But if you can even find one who is receptive to the idea, you've done an awful lot of good. We have a lot better chance of making patients more receptive to that idea if Patients don't have the sense that if I say no, they can walk outside, walk back in in 10 minutes, see another emergency provider in the same department who will say yes. 
Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Strayer, do you have any personal experience of so-called converting the patient to kind of seeing the light? I mean, like you said, most of the patients will just get angry. Have you had experience of someone sort of coming to terms with things right in front of you? Occasionally, I can get through to a person by humanizing their experience and emphasizing how much I think that they're suffering. And there have been occasional cases, especially in patients that I've seen more than once for the same problem, where I can say things like, you deserve better than this. You must be really suffering. You don't have to suffer this way. And in occasional circumstances, in occasional patients, I've been able to get them to admit to me that they have a dependence problem and ask for help. How many of those patients actually seek the help that I refer them to and improve their situation? I don't know. But I know that it's going to be more than the number of patients who would be nudged towards recovery if I just gave them the 20 perks that they came in for. If we all did that, then, you know, I think we would be helping a lot of people. I think there, there's a, a sizable number of patients with chronic pain who aren't drug seekers. They're not technically addicts. They're just people who are doing what their doctor told them to do. They're taking their pills as prescribed, often at doses that really I think are uh, unwise. Uh, and they're not really being made better by their drugs. Like They're not achieving the ultimate goal of drug therapy, which is offering a patient benefits that exceed harms in terms of quality of life and quantity of life. But they believe they need their drugs because if they don't take them, they get sick. And of course, they get sick because of opioid withdrawal symptoms. And so the easiest way to fix that is just to continue the drugs. I mean, you, know, you can stop your antihypertensives and stop your statin with no problem at all. But you can't do that after a few weeks of taking opioids. And I've had some patients who I've, I've helped them come to understand that, you know, being on 160 of Oxycontin twice a day, isn't helping them and that they might well feel better off if we can, over the course of eight or 12 weeks, cut their opioid dose in half or even further. But it really takes a long conversation and it takes a committed patient and it takes generally some sort of longitudinal relationship with the patient, which, which in the emergency department, you're less likely to have. We're not going to have that kind of longitudinal relationship with the patient in the emergency department, but we can facilitate a longitudinal relationship with providers like you, Dave, by not coming in between a patient's primary physician and their desire for more opioids by prescribing more opioids. I was recently reading a proposal that suggested that Medicaid patients should only have their opioid pills paid for by Medicaid if those opioid pills come from a single provider and a single pharmacy. And this seems to me a very sensible way of reducing the poly-provider, poly-pharmacy problem that we know is so strongly associated with bad outcomes in opioid misuse. So we've got the patient in front of us, and we want to try and help them with their pain. What are some of the alternatives to opiates that we can use for our patients with chronic pain who you've decided are not malingering and you want to treat their pain with some alternatives? There's NSAIDs, there's ketamine, there's a whole bunch of different medications out there. In practical terms, in general, 
what kind of medications should we be thinking about giving our patients and what kind of dosages, what kind of alternatives do we have for opiates? When we talk about managing chronic pain, patients who are high risk for opioid misuse, we don't want to give them opioids. You have to uh, think about them in different groups and the types of folks who present with chronic pain and where their pain is. One of the most common presentations uh, we see in patients with opioid misuse is back pain, low back pain. And I have had tremendous success in this group by using what has been referred to as trigger point injection, where I infiltrate 10 cc's of bupivacaine right where they say it hurts. And when I first heard about this, it wasn't that long ago, I couldn't believe that it could possibly work because if it would work, then why wouldn't we be doing it for everyone? Uh, because it's essentially harmless. But it turns out that it does work. And that a surprising number of patients with chronic low back pain, you infiltrate their muscle with 10 cc's of bupivacaine, and a few minutes later, they feel a lot better and they want to go. Is it placebo? Is it voodoo? I don't know. With the instilling bupivacaine into the low back muscles, uh, are there any studies that you're aware of? No. Uh, I've actually looked for, uh, for literature on this and I found nothing which I find stunning. But I don't think you need a lot of literature to try it. We certainly infiltrate all sorts of other tissues with local anesthetics. So we know the harm profile pretty well. As long as you don't put the bupivacaine into an into a vessel, um, you're not going to cause any that. harm. What kind of volumes are you using in terms of uh, the bupivacaine? 10 cc's, 0.5% bupivacaine, 10 cc's, uh, in a normal size adult, I just put it right. I just ask them to point where it, where it hurts the most, and I just dump a bunch of bupivacaine right there. That's my approach to local anesthesia in general: is to overcome inaccuracy in terms of pinpoint precision of where you're supposed to put it. I overcome that with brute force and using large volumes, letting it spread throughout the tissues. And um, I, I've had great success uh, in this really challenging group of patients. It also gives you a gambit. It gives you something that you can do for them. The conversation that you're often having with these patients is, doc, uh, you say you're going to give me Tylenol and Motrin. I know that doesn't work for me. So I came here in pain. What are you going to do for my pain? And when I can come back and say, I have a technique that I found is very effective for this problem. I want to put a local anesthetic that's going to numb the area. I want to put that right where, where you say it hurts. I think that really changes the conversation. It also identifies patients who are truly uninterested in analgesia and are presenting for some other reason, malingerers, people who want the euphoric effects of opioids, and then, of course, um, people who want to sell Percocet on the street. Mm-hmm. That, that's a great trick. Um, I want to go on to some some different kinds of pain that we encounter. But before we move away from the mechanical low back pain, one thing that we've talked about in previous episodes is getting the patient involved in their own care. Rather than thinking about their pain being cured by whatever drug you're going to give them, that there might be something to be said about having patients take responsibility uh, for helping themselves and things like massage therapy, applying heat, um, all these things that there is some evidence base for that they really need to be involved in their own treatment of their pain rather than just expecting a pill to take the pain away. 
What's, what are your thoughts on that? One of the concepts I like to emphasize is the mistake of chasing zero pain. We've trained ourselves and our patients to think that they can take a pill and have no pain. There is tremendous harm in trying to bring the pain score to zero. The closer you get to zero pain, the more likely you are to cause harm with pain medications. A much better strategy is to engage your patient in a way that lets them know that your goal and their goal is not to have zero pain, but is to have a pain level that allows them to return to function, to demedicalize their pain so they can carry out their usual activities so that they can become engaged in therapies that aren't associated with the harms of opioids like yoga, massage therapy, seeing a therapist to manage their depression, going back to work to feel more purpose, uh, demedicalizing their pain, I think is a really important part of the discussion in chronic pain, especially. I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of patients don't want to hear that. I mean, and it's really, really tough. Not They don't want to hear it or the intervention that you're proposing isn't covered by their insurance or it involves effort. I mean, like fibromyalgia is a good example. Like exercise, there's nothing better than exercise for patients with fibromyalgia. And there's probably nothing worse than opioids for those patients, even though they're very often on those drugs. But I think as a society, you know, we've come to expect that if there's a problem, there must be a pill for that problem, whether it's pain or I can't sleep or erectile dysfunction or you name it. And the companies that make these drugs and are, you know, they're making money in the process. They, they've pushed these messages and, and we as physicians have been quick to oblige. But I think a message that patients need to hear sometimes is that pain is a fact of life. And I don't mean that in an unsympathetic way. I mean, I, I am as much you know, conditioned to relieve pain myself. But sometimes the best you can do is just take the edge off the pain. And we should be focusing more on the function and the quality of life than the actual number. Yeah. Sometimes what I explain to patients who come in, especially with mechanical low back pain, is I explain to them that some medications might be able to take the edge off the pain, but what they have is a mechanical problem that often requires a mechanical solution. And so things like massage therapy or yoga maybe of as much or more benefit than any medication. And also that every medical problem has some degree of psychological component to it. And that's not to say that it's, quote, you know, all in your head, uh, but rather that every medical problem has some, some degree of psychological component, some more than others. And in your case, there may be a psychological component that needs to be addressed. And that's something that I'm concerned about. So that's mechanical low back pain. I just want to go through a couple of other diagnoses and how you approach them in the emergency department in terms of how to manage the actual pain. So Dr. Strayer, when it comes to dental pain, that's another common one that we see a lot of patients who seem to be suffering quite a lot from their dental pain. What's your approach to managing dental pain in the emergency department? Dental pain is an easy one because using a dental block is so effective for dental pain. So seasoned opioid misusers will never present to emergency departments with dental pain because they know that uh, many emergency physicians are comfortable blocking the tooth, which uh, is a fabulous management strategy for a dental pain. And I encourage all emergency providers, all acute care providers to avoid opioids in the context of dental pain and provide analgesia and anesthesia using uh, a dental block. 
Okay. And what about uh, migraine? Sometimes you have patients coming in with migraine requesting opioids. What's your approach to managing the pain of uh, migraine patients? Uh, if there's one pain syndrome where opioids are known to not be useful or to be harmful, it's in uh, headaches where opioids are specifically recommended against by multiple pain societies, by neurology societies. We have lots of tools to help us manage headache, including drugs like metoclopramide and prochlorperazine uh, as first-line agents. Uh, NSAIDs are also effective for headache. Ergot alkaloids, high-flow oxygen is known to be beneficial not just in cluster headache, but for undifferentiated headache. Oxygen works, and I've used that on a number of occasions. And then if you want to be more cutting edge, you can reset your patient's synapses with uh, anesthetic dose propofol. So low-dose propofol for refractory migraine that's, that's not responding to anything else. It, it definitely works. I mean, the, the data is pretty unequivocal and that it, it works. The question is, do you want to uh, engage in a procedural sedation setup to manage your migraine patient? I don't think any of us are going to be moving to propofol early in our headache management, but for the patient who has severe headaches refractory to other therapies, it's a good strategy. Those are great strategies. I mean, once in a while, you will find a patient who's had substantial relief with triptans, and those are just another, you know, drug in the toolbox, expensive as they are. So we've talked about approaches to migraine, dental pain, low back pain. We had talked about sickle cell disease in a recent episode. And in that episode, we had talked about the challenges of treating patients with chronic pain and sickle cell disease who come in with an acute pain syndrome. What's your approach to treating sickle cell patients when they come in with acute on chronic pain? Sickle cell, I think, is the most difficult of all chronic pain syndromes to manage. These patients have a disease that's going to limit their life. They are known to have terrible pain crises that are uh, debilitating along with all sorts of other morbidity uh, associated with a sickle cell disease. And it's really hard to limit opioids in this context. Unfortunately, because it's really hard to limit opioids in this context, we physicians have also turned scores of sickle patients into opioid addicts who have manifest evidence of opioid addiction, and many of whom, at least in the, con in the group of, of sickle patients who present themselves to the emergency department, are seeking not analgesia but euphoria. And uh, the fact that they also have a terrible disease doesn't mitigate the problem that they're in the emergency department, not for analgesia, but to get high. So I try to make a judgment here, and it's hard, but I, I'm paid a lot of money to make these sorts of judgments, and so that's what I do. In patients who present themselves to the emergency department routinely for opioids, requesting opioids for their sickle pain, many of them will say things like, I just need a few rounds of three milligrams of Dilaudid, and then I'm good. When I hear those types of messages, I know that what I'm dealing with is opioid misuse, and I treat it as such. I treat it in the same way that I would treat any instance of opioid misuse, which is that I offer them non-opioid alternatives. And most of the time, when I make it clear to them, when they internalize the idea that I'm not going to be using opioids, they get up and walk out, which is okay. Uh, sometimes I'll be managing a sickle patient who wants to try the alternatives to opioids. And what I use there is first I use butyrophenones, 
So I used to use droperidol. We lost droperidol, and so now I use Haldol and Benadryl in relatively high doses, intramuscularly or intravenously. I tend to use a lot of IM uh, medications in this group because IV access is often difficult. And failing that, that often is successful. My experience is that uh, patients will fall asleep, wake up, and they want to go. I used to see this all the time, which droperidol, droperidol was fabulously effective for this indication. Haldol is less effective, but can still be effective in higher doses, especially when given in combination with Benadryl intramuscularly. My next line for sickle pain is ketamine. And there's a fair amount of literature now supporting the use of ketamine in this context. And I will give it either as a bolus, um, 10 milligrams, 15 milligrams, or more often uh, as an infusion over 10 or 20 minutes. And what I've been doing most recently is I've been giving 20 to 30 milligrams over 10 to 20 minutes. And I find that patients become analgesed, a little bit loopy, and then they come out of it and they are happy to go home. And that's a really appealing strategy for patients who are on super high doses of opioids who probably have opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And by virtue of the NMDA effects, not to get too nerdy, but I think you can really do quite a lot of good with ketamine in those patients. Yeah, we talked about the opioid-sparing effects of ketamine uh, in one of our Journal Jam podcasts. I want to get onto the chronic abdominal pain. Dr. Strayer, any tips and tricks on managing patients who come in with chronic abdominal pain? So I manage chronic abdominal pain in exactly the same way that I manage sickle pain, which is that I first reset patient expectations regarding what I'm trying to accomplish and regarding my use of opioids, namely that I'm not going to be using opioids. If they want to hang around for therapy after they accept that I won't be using opioids to manage their chronic pain, their chronic abdominal pain in this case, then the mainstays of my therapy for chronic abdominal pain are butyrophenone therapy with droperidol when I had it and now Haldol and then uh, ketamine. Yeah, I think we're sort of talking around a topic that's quite an important one, and it's simply that we need better drugs for pain. I mean, the drugs we have just don't work very well, regardless of what class you're talking about, for a good number of patients with pain. And so, you know, the default position has become opioids because that message has become, you know, it's inculcated in us over the last few decades. Uh, but I think until those pain therapies are available, we have to help patients understand that you can't make the treatment worse than the disease. And we, we just, we're doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and Dr. Strayer, do you have any opinion when it comes to hydromorphone versus morphine in the acute setting in the emergency department? So I've tried to get hydromorphone removed from my emergency formulary. We actually took that to a departmental vote in one of the places where I work. And the vote was something like 33 to 1 against removing hydromorphone from the formulary. I appear to be the only physician who wants to remove hydromorphone from the formulary. I think the idea that hydromorphone is more effective for pain than morphine is false. And the reason that we believe that is because we use dramatically different potencies of medication. So people give uh, four milligrams of morphine uh, intravenously, typically, and they're surprised that it doesn't work as well as one milligram of hydromorphone intravenously without recognizing that one milligram of intravenous dilaudid is equivalent to about eight milligrams of morphine, not four. We know that hydromorphone is more euphoric than morphine. And my concern around physicians who move to hydromorphone as a first-line opioid is 
that they're using a drug that we know is more likely to, to create euphoria and therefore be associated with higher rates of opioid misuse. I second that. I mean, I, I think the reason we don't use, I'll be very frank, the reason we don't use morphine is because people are pushing the companies that make oxycodone and hydromorphone. I mean, the, the, the market is behind those drugs. I would say that in patients who've got significant renal insufficiency, that you do worry about the accumulation of some of the morphine metabolites, and that, that can be a bit of an issue sometimes. Uh, but I agree with Ruben. There's very little reason not to use uh, morphine when you decide an opiate's uh, what you're going to go with. All right. The old morphine stayed and true. Now, what about outpatient management? So we've talked about some of the acute problems in the emergency department in terms of pain and treating them. Uh, in terms of when you're ready to discharge a patient with chronic pain, who's had an acute exacerbation and you've decided they're not malingering, what options do you have in terms of the outpatient management? And how do, how do you usually write up the scripts? What, what kind of tips can you tell us about writing scripts for patients with chronic pain? Yeah, I think if you're starting a patient on a drug, the really important thing is that you have to have the patient assessed shortly after the drug has begun. The idea that you send the patient home with 30 days worth of something and you're pre-assessed at that point is crazy. I mean, there, there's no reason why they shouldn't be assessed within a few days to assess both their response to the, you know, their analgesic response, but also the, the toxicities of the drug. So, you know, it sounds kind of trite, motherhood and apple pie, but, you know, minimizing the dose and going slowly. I mean, sort of all the sort of common sense concepts we were taught in medical school. I'd be a bit more dogmatic and suggest that uh, emergency providers in particular should not be prescribing opioids for chronic pain. To the extent that opioids are used for chronic pain, and we know that they are massively overused in chronic pain, but to the extent that they are appropriately used in chronic pain, they are used by one provider who has expertise in managing chronic pain and can follow the patient through their chronic pain course and tailor the management of their chronic pain to include safe use of opioids in concert with other analgesic and functional modalities that will treat their chronic pain as a syndrome rather than as a symptom to be fixed with a pill. We should be prescribing a lot fewer opioids for acute pain and no opioids for chronic pain. If you feel like you need to uh, prescribe opioids for acute pain, we can do it a lot more smartly than we've been taught by firstly reducing the number of opioid pills that we prescribe, uh, where we used to classically give 30. We should be moving closer to 10 or 7. Here, here. Also by using opioid preparations that are non-euphoric, abandoning oxycodone, which is known to be the most euphoric of the commonly used oral opioids, the opioid preparation that's in Percocet, and using less euphoric, less addictive compounds like, for example, immediate release morphine, which is what I've moved to in the small number of patients that I discharge with a prescription for oral opioids. And in terms of dosing, immediate relief Relief. <laughs> in terms of dosing immediate release morphine, can you give our, our listeners uh, a basic range and how you dose them for the patient with acute pain um, who's naive to morphine and how you dose it in patients who are not naive to morphine? So 
I do not prescribe morphine or any uh, oral opioid to patients who take opioids every day. For patients who have an acute pain insult, like a broken bone, I believe that most of these patients can be managed without opioids. I prescribe one gram of Tylenol and 400 milligrams of ibuprofen round the clock Q6 hours. In a small number of patients that I think really have a, a terribly painful stimulus, a terrible broken bone, something that's causing a tremendous amount of pain where they need breakthrough opioids on top of their round the clock acetoprofen, I use immediate release morphine, 15 milligram tabs, one five milligram tabs. I prescribe seven to 12, 15 milligrams morphine IR tablets, and I, I tell patients to use those for breakthrough over the next two to three days, every four to six hours for pain that's unbearable with adequately dosed Tylenol and Motrin. I agree with what Ruben just said. I do think that with acetaminophen, a lot of the analgesia is probably placebo effect, but I think the placebo effect is highly underrated. Rather than saying TID or QID, it's probably worth specifying, you know, Q8 or Q6 hours on the prescription because that's well, that lacks ambiguity. And it makes it very clear to the pharmacist and the patient what you want done. Three times a day could be uh, 8, 9, and 10 a.m. Yeah. And then you're set right. for the day. So no, three times a day is open to interpretation. Q8 hours is not. All right. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to pick both of your brains about what you think is in the future in terms of managing pain and opiate misuse in the ED. Dr. Strayer, you go first. I think we're coming to understand that we... Physicians Medicine at Large has created an opioid, a prescription opioid epidemic. And as we try to scale back, as we try to retreat from the harm that we've caused over the past 20 years with the widespread adoption of opioids for chronic pain and the more liberal use of opioids for acute pain, I think we're going to be focused on strategies that we can use both to manage chronic pain, addiction, and acute pain in ways that are less likely to be harmful, that don't include the harms that we associate with high-dose opioids and large doses of opioids for both acute pain and for chronic pain. And Dr. Yearling? I think it's really important for physicians, regardless of where they practice, to shed the notion that pain equals opioids. And the fewer patients we start on opioids, the better. There is very little evidence that when you put a patient on opioids, you achieve the ultimate goal of medical care, which is affording benefits that offset or exceed the side effects. It's just for so many patients, we don't do that when we use opioids. And we send inadvertently an awful lot of patients down a road that neither we nor they want to be on when we start people who are opioid naive on opioids with the best of intentions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Dr. Yerlink, I understand that the CDC just came out with a draft guideline on the use of opiates. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The CDC guidelines will be released early in 2016, and it's no secret that they are proposing that in the management of chronic pain, opioid doses should not be exceeding 90 milligrams of morphine a day. I can't uh, emphasize enough how important I think that is. The, the side effects of opioids are for the most part dose dependent. And if we could get everybody on doses of two and four and 600 milligrams of morphine or equivalent down to doses of 90, the amount of harm that we would avoid is just enormous. Uh, you know, unknowable, but enormous.
right, great. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This is a really important issue, and I hope that the knowledge that our listeners gain from listening to this podcast, they can start using on their next shift in the ED. Thank you, Anton. It was a real pleasure. Thanks. Before I sign off, we've got two great conferences coming up in February 2016. On February 6th is the first ever EM Cases course. Now we're almost sold out, but if you go to the EM Cases website, you should be able to get a spot still. We're doing everything we can here at EM Cases to make this course a fun, interactive, pearl-packed extravaganza. So I hope to see you there. The other course that unfortunately I won't be speaking at this year like I have in the past few years is Whistler's Update in EM Conference put on by the University of Toronto, February 21st to 24th, where there will be some great EM cases speakers like Chris Hicks, David Carr, Joel Yaffe, and Kylie Bosman. And skiing is bound to be awesome. So until next time, take it easy.